I grew up in uh, what might be called the, uh, the Christian Mecca. I grew up in Wheaton, Illinois, right at the center of the, uh, the Bible belt of the Midwest. There were churches on uh, every corner there. Wheaton College was right at the center of the town, this great Christian college. And uh, Christian publishers and business, businesses were some of the main employers uh, of the area. And because of this, there was kind of a built-in culture of, uh, of Christian excellence, uh, a sense of uh, Christian ambition. And uh, uh, it kind of lifted all the churches around there. It just kind of lifted their game. The churches were, were pretty excellent. Uh, they had good programs and good teaching and great Christian people, serious about spiritual growth. The church I attended was known for its precise and uh, powerful preaching. It had a, a large staff of excellent Bible expositors. Uh, its worship services and singing were impressive. The church I had had, was at had a 150-person choir and a massive pipe organ and all kinds of brass. It was just incredible. Uh, the Sunday school, school programs were top-notch. Its missions program was amazing. Gave over 50% of its budget to missions. And its members took spiritual growth and the pursuit of spiritual gifts very seriously. In fact, they had classes on pursuing your spiritual gifts, finding your spiritual gifts so that you could use them very effectively. And all of this was very good and helpful in, in many ways, but there's always a bit of a danger in the pursuit of Christian excellence and spiritual ambition, isn't there? Pride can begin to creep in, uh, a spiritual self-focus, and even competitiveness and, uh, and comparison, leading to little divisions, both corporately and individually. So we have to be careful. Now I bring this up because this is sort of the situation in the Corinthian church as we come to this text in 1 Corinthians 13. You may not be aware of it, but this church, the Corinthian church, was what I would call the first mega church. Not in size, they were actually not that big of a church, but in talent and giftedness. They were mega excellent in all the gifts they would have topped any of the churches in Wheaton. They had many eloquent and wise Bible teachers. So much so that the Apostle Paul was considered kind of blasé, just mediocre. The Apostle Paul, Mr. Bible, the guy who writes this stuff, was like, he's, he's okay. He's not that great. He had to defend his eloquence in, in chapter 2. Actually defend his lack of it, of this book. Because they had such dynamic speakers in the church. They also had gifted healers. People skilled at 
physically healing people, whether through prayer or medicine or both, they had them. They had men and women with great wisdom and knowledge, bringing incredible counsel and advice. Their corporate worship was amazing and passionate. The gift of tongues was very prominent in the church, this kind of angelic worship language, and they were proud of it. And there were gifts, if it, just before this chapter, in chapter 12, you can read about all their gifts of administration and gifts of uh, prophecy. In, in fact, in chapter 1, verse 7, it says, we're told that they had every gift. He says, you have every spiritual gift in this little church. But of course, if you've read through this book, you know that this church began to be riddled with division. Because people began to group up around their, their kind of favorite gifted teachers. In chapter 1, you know, Paul kind of imitates them, saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. They all had a teacher they liked. They literally became kind of groupies. The Christian celebrity thing we have today is not new. It was right there. And they were grouping around them. And of course, they began to compete and compare with all their giftedness. People holding up certain gifts as better than, oh, you have the gift of administration, that's cool. I have the gift of prophecy. So their pursuit of their Christian excellence and spiritual ambition was actually hurting their fellowship and their body life. Here they were excellent Christians who couldn't get along. So our text this morning is Paul's corrective for them. He's been speaking about their spiritual giftness in chapter 12 just before, and he's going to continue speaking. If you look, chapter 12 is titled Spiritual Gifts. You look at chapter 14, and it's titled Prophecy in Tongues. He's still talking about all their gifts. But our text this morning is right in the middle of it, and here he talks about something else. Look at uh, 12, chapter 12, verse 31, just before it. It says, But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a more excellent way. Of course, we see that way is the way of love, verse, chapter 13. And then look at 14, verse 1, as he ends that section. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. He doesn't say give up the spiritual gifts. He doesn't say give up this kind of spiritual excellence, but he says, I am going to show you a way that as you do this, I'm going to show you a better way, something you must have. He says, first and foremost, you must have love. And he says three things about love here. And the first is that love must be priority. Look at verse one of our text. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul is saying, listen, Corinthians, when it comes to your favorite gift, that was their favorite one, the gift of tongues, the gift that you exalt as a sign of superior spirituality, it is useless without love. Now, interestingly, I know there's a lot of talk about what is this gift of tongues. You can read a lot about it in the commentaries. 
In some places in Scripture, it looks like it's kind of maybe a gift of speaking in different languages to be able to spread the Gospels. You see that in Acts. Here it seems to be more of an angelic gift of uh, some kind of special worship language in some way. This angelic lingo it's kind of described as. Some people just think it's hyperbole for their eloquent speech. But whatever the case, the point is, without love undergirding this gift, it's useless. It's nothing. It's a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. I like that, that kind of image. I remember when my kids were little, one kid in particular loved to get in the pots and pans. He would put one on his head so he could hear himself sing. And then he would bang these pots and pans. You know, and he's sure that he was making a beautiful sound. But it wasn't. It was a clanging Clanging, clashing sound, useless, meaningless noise. So interesting, in, in chapter 12, verse 7, the first thing he says about the gifts is, verse 7, to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, that's the gift, for the common good. You must be using this to serve and to love others. He's saying to the Corinthians, without love, all your eloquent speaking and ecstatic gifts are no different than what's going on in the pagan temples where they're rallying and dancing around in ecstasy before their idols. It's just religious words and noise to God. It's quite a warning. The best of our corporate worship, whether we're singing like angels or praising God with wonderful words, feeling so moved... If it's being done in an individualistic spirit that's all about me and my experience with no thought of encouragement or building up those around me, no love this way, no love for the body, it's just annoying noise to God. If what is coming out of my mouth this way in worship is not anchored in love this way, it's just noise. And then Paul says this love factor doesn't just affect their external words and worship that's coming out of them, but their inner spirituality. Look at verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. This is about that, those gifts of deep spirituality, right? Faith that can move mountains. Wow. Prophetic powers of insight and foresight that can fathom the, these mysteries, gain knowledge. And note the word all in there, right? He says, I can have all of that, the fullness of it, all knowledge, all faith. These are the kinds of gifts that really made you somebody in the church of Corinth, the ultimate status gift, knowledge. Remember, they live in that Greek culture of Plato and Socrates. To have knowledge was everything. And faith, to do impossible miracles. These are the kind of gifts that make you somebody in the church today as well. We love the guy that knows it all, the Bible answer man. 
the guys with the system for your Christianity. We go you know, to their conferences. We make them gurus. We buy their books, listen to their podcasts. And if you can promise the impossible, the miracles, the faith, healing will give you your own TV show. But Paul says, I don't care if you are the ultimate of all that. If you don't have love, these gifts are not flowing out in love. If, if love is not the source and motivation of your actions, then you are nothing, he says. And finally, he raises the bar even higher and talks about gifts of ultimate self-sacrifice. Look at verse 3. If I, if I give away all I have... And if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Notice that. These are gifts that may not build your worldly status that much, but you definitely think that you might gain something before God with them. I mean, vows of poverty, giving all your wealth away, martyrdom. Come on, that's got to gain some righteousness points some religious points before God. But Paul says of all of these can be done in a loveless, actually selfish way, not actually serving anybody but yourself in them. Maybe you're trying to get something before God and he says you gain nothing. It's all useless without love. Now, at this point, I kind of think we need to stop and evaluate ourselves. Because, to be honest, I think we're a lot like this Corinthian church. I think CTR is a little mega church. We may be small, but we're pretty gifted in a lot of ways. We're small, but we're good. We have some... Uh, talent here, a lot of talent. The Lord has blessed us. Think of our giftedness in areas of knowledge and wisdom. Did you notice when you came in the front door, all the flyers for the different classes and studies on offer this fall? We have an incredible women's Bible study with talented teachers. I don't think it's second to any in the city. We have my dad leading our men's Bible study on Hebrews. He's, he's pretty good. We have an excellent youth program with Andrew and Trevor leading the way and teaching our, our children and leading the interns. We have elders that can teach and preach the word and that are leading book reading groups to help you kind of analyze your culture and live out your faith. Those working with our, our King's Club do an incredible job. Those working with our children's church are, are top-notch you know what the number one downloaded uh, teaching series is in this church? Sarah Jensen's teaching series to the kids during COVID, those videos she made. They top all of it by a lot because they're good. But the question is, in all of this, are we loving each other? And what about our giftedness in worship and praise? 
We may not have the angelic lingo tongue gift going here, but I think we do pretty awesome in, in praise and song. Our musicians are fantastic. We have flautists and violinists and pianists and drummers. And, and man, can we sing. I love sitting right here when we sing in this building. If it sounds bad to you, sit right up here. It's incredible. It's all coming right at you. It's awesome. I'm moved by it. I love it. But are we loving each other in it? How does it sound to the Lord? And that comes down to an individual question for each one of us. We all need to examine our hearts and ask, with what kind of spirit do I come to worship with God's people here? Is it all about my experience? Am I just showing up, thinking about what I'm going to get, the experience I'm going to have? Is it all about my learning moment, my worship moment, me being encouraged? Or do we, do we come desiring to lift each other up, to, to build each other up, to exhort each other with our songs? I love how it says in Ephesians 5.19, you're making melody in your heart to the Lord, but you're singing to who? To one another to encourage them. Submitting to one another out of love. You know, it can be a little bit hard to analyze yourself in this regard. <coughs> Excuse me. It'd be hard to evaluate our, our own heart and our own motives as we come together. I can just imagine the Corinthians hearing this letter read out in church for the first time and thinking, Boy, it's a good thing we're a loving church. <laughs> it's a good thing we are a loving church. I feel sorry for those people down the street, that other church. They aren't very loving. You tell them, Paul. We'll take this letter over to them. I think they would automatically place themselves in the loving category. Or maybe somebody else at the church isn't loving, but, but I am. I'm hearing this. And yeah, there's some people that aren't loving here. It's hard to to think about ourselves. I'm pretty sure I'm a loving guy. I love my wife, my kids. I love babies and puppies. <laughs> I love soccer. I love cheeseburgers. I'm a loving guy. I would be insulted if I heard someone say, you know, Carrie isn't a very loving guy. I would be like, come say that to my face. I'll show you some love. So Paul, I think in, in anticipation of this, this tendency to think of ourselves as loving and thus not really hear these verses, just read through them, oh, that's nice. I'm glad there's some people here that need to hear that. I think he, he takes a moment to define love, to help them maybe rethink about themselves a little bit. So look at 4 to 7. He says, let me tell you about love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Endures all things. 
This is the, the pattern of love that he holds up. He's telling him love must be priority, and now he shows him the pattern. And this is a poem that you've probably heard before. It's quite familiar, isn't it? You may have heard it read at weddings. You may have seen parts of it on the front of Valentine's Day cards. We've seen it stitched onto little pillows. It's kind of warm. It's kind of fuzzy. It's, it sounds romantic. But actually, if we slow down and take a look, we see that this has very little to do with romance and feelings. Paul starts in verse 4 with two key words as to what love is. Then he ends with three things it does in verse 7. And in between, he gives a specific list of what it is not like and what it does not do. So let's start with the, the two key words that it kind of express the inner character of love. The first one is patient. Love is patient, he says. Out of all the words Paul could pick to talk about love, the first word that he comes up with is love is patient. I think if, I think if you went on the street and you asked people, hey, tell me what love is, I don't think the first word out of their mouth would be, oh, it's patience. I don't think they would say that. But he says, no, love is about being patient. And the idea behind this word is, is long-suffering, slow to anger. It's the relationally passive side of love that takes in wrongs and absorbs sins against us again and again. That's what the, the word here, the Greek word, is about. Without retaliation or even resentment, love absorbs. It's patient as it's being sinned against. And the second word he uses to describe the essence of love here is sort of the, the positive opposite of this. Love is kind. Patient take, takes in. Love is kind. It, it puts out. It's the idea of relationally moving towards someone in, in mercy and grace, always looking to do good to them. You put it together and you have this ideal picture of a person who, though they are continually taken from, they, they continue to give. Their giving isn't conditional on getting because they love. They take the hits and the hurts because they love. They get out of, give out of, of a willing grace and mercy because they love. And you see what this love does? That's verse 7 as he wraps it up. This love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, this love never gets cynical. It never gives up relationally. It keeps believing, in a sense, in that, in that other person. It keeps hoping in that other person. It, in, it endures and gives. I know a family in this church that uh, took in a, a troubled teenager after his mother had passed away and his father wasn't around, and he wasn't easy, and they cared for him, and he was hard on them. He abused them. He cursed them out. He stole from them, but they kept loving him and believing in him and enduring 
After he got out of their house, they kept loving him. He ended up in jail. And he would call them at, his, at their lowest, his lowest points, and they would love him, send him letters, and encourage him, although he kept taking advantage. And to this day, he keeps struggling, and they keep loving him. This is the definition of love that our world thinks is a little bit stupid. It's a little bit naive. You're going to be taken advantage of. It's too vulnerable. You can get hurt. But Paul says this is what love is. And I think the Corinthians are supposed to be reevaluating themselves at this point on the love scale and noting maybe the mismatch of their lives. And in case they haven't gotten to the point, Paul gives them a list of what love is not. That's that part in the middle. I love this. It's a very intentional and specific list, special for them, by the way. But we have to do a little page flipping to see it. So I want you to, we're going to do a little page flipping in Corinthians here. So put your hand so you can keep it in chapter 13 here. And look at verse 4. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Now flip back to chapter 3, verse 3 with me. Chapter 3, verse 3 says this. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh behaving only in a human way? They, love doesn't envy, but, but they are jealous of each other. Look at 4.18. Just flip over to 4, verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming. He said, love is not boastful. They're arrogant. And if he hasn't made the point, look at 5, verse 6. Oh, actually, yeah, 5, verse 6. Your boasting is not good. They are jealous, arrogant boasters. And he's told them, love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. What's the second thing he says love is not? Look at verse 5. After saying it's rude, he said, it, it's not rude. He says it does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Now look at chapter 6, verse 1. He says love, it, 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 it's not, what does it say? Irritable. It doesn't, it's not resentful. It doesn't insist on his own way. And he says in chapter 6, verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? They're dragging each other into court. He says, wait a minute, love doesn't insist on its own way. In fact, the closer rendering of not being resentful is it doesn't keep record of wrongs. They are taking each other into court. Then chap, look at Verse 6 of our text. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices at the truth. Then flip back to chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. 
They're rejoicing in their wrongdoing. They're proud of their tolerance of terrible sin. And he says, love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Everything Paul says love is not, he's already directly said to him, they are that. You see, this list is a a stinging rebuke, making it painfully clear that they aren't loving. So do you hear the tone of this, this poem? It's not, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. No, it's this. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. This is a rebuke. It's not a pretty plaque on the wall. It's not a cross-stitched pillow. It's a rebuke. He's nailing him to the wall. Why? Because they have prioritized the pursuit of, of gifts, the gifts of eloquence, the gifts of knowledge for themselves over the pursuit of love. They've gotten the cart before the horse, and he says it's all useless. They are extremely gifted, but they have no love, no real love. So we need to come back to ourselves now, don't we? We can think a lot about the terrible Corinthians. We need to come back to ourselves as a church and as individuals. How are we doing with this kind of love now that he's defined it for us? How are we doing with patience and kindness towards each other at Christ the Redeemer Church? Do we see that maybe we're not as thinking, loving as, as maybe we think we are? Christians, with all that's going on in our country right now, with all the divisiveness, all the polarization, where people are just thinking of themselves and their rights, we need to excel in love. As we come to church and, and we get involved with small groups, are we coming to, to love each other this way? Coming to be patient and long-suffering to help each other? Are we getting involved in each other's lives in such a way that we can take on each other's burdens and, and, and help each other with, each, with, with their issues? Coming to give out of our energies and, and service and kindness, willing to give graciously even when somebody hurts us. When somebody has a different opinion than us on something important. Are we coming just to hear and inspiring speaking and get more knowledge so that I can grow better and be a more excellent Christian? So I can show the world why Christianity is better? My friends, we have received this love, this real love from Christ. This love that bears all things and always responds in kindness and mercy. If you remember the reading from 1 John this morning, chapter 4, 
It's talking about the love of God. And you get to verse 10, it says, In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Right? To bear the anger of God for us and the punishment. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another like this, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Christ endured all our sin and poured out all his love at the cross. We have been so loved and by his spirit in us. That's what that text, if that God lives in us, we can so love. The question is, will we? If not, all the spiritual talk, all the worship experiences, all the biblical knowledge, all the Christian excellence is useless. And let me just say, this isn't a call to perfection, but to pursuit. We will struggle to love this way. We will fail miserably at times. But we will strive to keep this real Christ-like love first priority. That's what we're trying to do. And you know, this pursuit should drive us, of course, to Christ, to his spirit in us and towards each other in grace and mercy, we must depend on him. It's the fruits of his spirit that bring this. Now Paul, he ends this section with one more truth about love. It's to be our priority. It's to be our, the pattern of our life. He gives us one more thing, though, that he points out about love to motivate these Corinthians forward to pursue this gift of love or to pursue, I should say, love before any gift. And it's very simple. Verse 8, look what he says. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. He says, he talks about the permanence of love. Paul makes it very clear here that all the spiritual gifts are temporary Prophecy and knowledge and tongues and healing, they are all for the purpose of building the, the, the church into the likeness of Christ, helping us know God and grasp his wave and achieve his purposes. All of us using our gifts for the common good, but there will come a time when all these gifts will pass away. Look at verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. It seems when you first read it a bit complicated, a bit esoteric, but he's simply saying that a day is coming... When, when spiritually, 
We will no longer be like immature children who don't fully understand. And our spiritual insight won't be cloudy and, and kind of dim as it is now. A time is coming when we will see God face to face and know him fully as he knows us. And then all the spiritual gifts, which were tools to help us know and learn about God and know him, they'll be redundant, won't they? They'll be like a flashlight that you're using to see when the sun comes up. Flashlight's useless now. Don't need it. I see fully. That's what all those gifts will be like. They have served their purpose. They are done. But not love. It goes on forever. It's the greatest. It's greater even than faith and hope. Look at verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Because in heaven... Our faith in the unseen God will be fulfilled. And our hope will have found its object. But love will never end. Love is the, the relational essence of who God is. Just expand and expand. We will just bask in it all the more with God and his family. Paul is saying, why... Would you put anything before love, real love? It's the only thing that goes on forever. So where are our priorities this morning? Where is love in, in, in your spiritual kind of priorities and ambitions? It needs to be first. It needs to, to be the motivator, the driver. All those other things are useless. Without it, we are nothing, he says. We gain nothing, he says. And we go nowhere. At Christ the Redeemer, I want us to be a little mega church in, in love. So let's pray. Father, we pray right now for your help. Help us know your son's love in our life, to accept that love, to know him, to be loved by him, and help us then to depend on his spirit in us. So that as we pursue you and your gifts and our growth, we do it all in real eternal love. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name and by his power. Amen.